0: It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7 in your Bible today. We will finish up the book of Romans chapter 7. It's a passage that deals with a group of people, if you will, in Romans chapter 7, who thought that they were good enough to keep the law of God. They, this is what they thought. I'm a pretty good person. I have done enough to keep God's law. I have done enough to to make God happy with my life. And since I've done enough to make God happy and to keep God's law, then I've earned my way to heaven. Now, these people were believers in the church at Rome, but they struggled with that because that was the, the heritage that they came from Judaism. And the church at Rome was divided about 50% Jewish people and 50% Gentile people. For the sake of time, I won't go into all that. We've done that several times. Um, But there's a group of people who honestly thought that they were really, really good at being obedient and keeping God's law and that their obedience uh, to God's law made them a good enough person to earn salvation. And so Paul is writing in Romans chapter seven, the author of this book, Romans, is a guy, is an apostle, one of the leaders of the church named Paul probably the most influential guy in the New Testament, wrote more books than anybody else in the New Testament, wrote more words in the New Testament than anyone other than the Luke, who was part of Paul's ministry team. And and Paul is writing here, and, and he was a, a wonderful Pharisee. He was a, Pharisee was a, a strict keeper of the law. He probably kept the Old Testament law better than anybody else did. He would have been, we might say this way, he would have been in the upper echelon of lawkeepers. Some people would say he was an all star lawkeeper. Some people would say he was the goat of lawkeepers. He was the greatest of all time lawkeepers. I mean, he actually says in the Bible that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law. He was just, he was a man above and beyond what the average person could ever do. And he is writing here. To people who thought they were good and thought they were good enough to earn salvation and to merit salvation. And he is writing to them and he is helping them and us to understand that we are all sinners in desperate need of salvation. That's why he's writing. A flippant young man one time scoffingly asked his pastor, though he wasn't a member of the church, but the pastor that he talked to, he said this to him. He said, you pastor, you say unsaved people carry a a great weight of sin. Something every preacher has probably said. Frankly, the young man said, I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? Is it 10 pounds? Is it 20 pounds? Is it 100 pounds? I mean, how heavy is it? I don't feel anything. To which the pastor thought for a moment silently and gently replied to the young man, he said, if you weigh 400 pounds on a corpse, does the corpse feel it? The young man was quick to say, of course not. The corpse is dead, it feels nothing. To which the pastor replied in driving home his point, the spirit in the person that knows not Christ is equally dead. And though the load of sin is great in their life, he feels none of it. And Paul is talking here to a group of people who many thought they had been capable of Earning their salvation and they did not feel the weight of sin. And in chapter 7, he is working the, 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 the text to the, this idea, this culmination that we find in verses 14 to 25. Now we divided this chapter or this paragraph into two messages, fourteen to twenty-five. We did fourteen through eighteen, and we see in verse number fourteen is what the scripture says: "For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin." We we looked a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, last week we talked about it was our anniversary, so we talked about something else. But we looked. um, Two two weeks ago, I guess it would have been, what we know. And we know that the law is spiritual. We know that the law is good. We know that the law is godly because God gave us the law, the law of God, the totality of the Old Testament. It is a very, very, very good thing. But we also understand something, and that was the second point uh, two weeks ago. And what we understand is... the. rest of verse number 14, "'I am carnal, sold under sin. "'For that which I do, I allow not. "'For that which I would, that I do not. "'But what I hate, that I do. "'If then I do that which I would not, "'I consent unto the law that it is good.'" Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. And for the sake of time, we won't deal with all of that. But I just want to give you the points, what we understand that in me dwells no good thing. I have a desire to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. And then... We come to verse number 19 and following where Paul says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. I'm sorry, verse number 19. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Paul gives us insight into a well-known struggle. Verse number 19, a well-known struggle. The struggle between desire and behavior. For the good that I would, I do not. I have a desire to do good, but I don't do it. The good that Paul wanted to do is clear, but he only accomplishes evil. And the word for here in verse number 19 provides evidence that that good is within Paul's grasp, but doing good is not. I see good, I want to do good, but I can't do it. It's close to me, but it is unattainable. The statement duplicates what Paul says in verse 15, uh, where he said, for that which I do, I allow not, for what I would that I do not, but what I hate that I do. Simply making explicit what this earlier statement implies. Here's what Paul is saying. There's a struggle between what he wants to do and what he finds himself doing. There's a conflict between good and evil, and the struggle happens either because one's desire for what God forbid overwhelms him and overwhelms his accomplishment and acknowledgement that God is right to forbid it or because one's desire to do good expresses itself in evil ways and in the end accomplishes only evil. Paul says, I want to do good. I want to do the right thing, but I don't do it. I have this desire to do it. I just don't do it. What a challenging reality for all of us. The struggle between desire and behavior. I have this desire to do this. I I have this desire to be kind and gracious and loving and follow the biblical principles of the word of God, but they're just, they're there. I can see them, but I see myself not Doing them, And we're talking, folks, about one of the greatest Christian men who's ever lived. We're not talking about some person who's never read the Bible. We're not talking about some hedonist who doesn't care about God. We're talking about a man who is passionately and purposefully working to follow God. And yet he says this, The good that I would I do not, for, but the evil which I would not that I do. I don't want to do evil. I don't want to follow evil. I I hate the concept of evil, but that's what I find myself doing. Well, why? what does that lead to? Look at verse number 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. We see not just a struggle between desire and behavior, but we really see a struggle to obey. A struggle to obey. If I do what I wouldn't do, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul continues to go over this same ground, making sure that he gets his point across. He is repeating what he said in verse 16 and 17. He's saying it in a new way, but he, he doesn't go beyond what he has already said. In other words, he's being very, and, and understand this, he's being very, very redundant in his, in his teaching and in helping people to understand. And the redundancy is intentional. It's not accidental. Sometimes people read something in the Bible and they're like, well, I've heard that before. What do I need to hear it again? Because God is drawing emphasis to that point. God wants you to understand this point. And in Hebrew, the way Hebrews would write, which Paul was a Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points. So the way they drew special attention to anything was by way of redundancy, saying it over and over and over again to help you to understand it. Um, Let's illustrate it this way. If you're new to Canyon Ridge, you you might not know this, uh, but my mother uh, is a, she's 74 years old now, but when I was a kid, she was about six foot eight. Now she's about five two. I don't know how she lost so much height, but man, she was a mountain of a woman when I was growing up and uh, she absolutely um, would not tolerate uncleanliness. Like if you walked into her house, you know, she always tries to say she didn't do this, but she lies um, and she does not the truth and the text proves that I'm right. Um, but my mother used to vacuum the ceiling of our house. Like she'd buy a vacuum cleaner with a wand and she'd vacuum the ceiling. About every four weeks, I had to move all of the furniture uh, out from the walls so that we could vacuum under the couch. And my, my, my question was always this, who's sitting under there? And she would say, well, what if something happened and somebody saw under there? Who's looking under our couch? One time she said, well, if a tornado comes. And I told her, I had the wisdom of a nine-year-old in the mouth of a 15-year-old. And I said, mom, if a tornado happens, I don't think anybody cares what's under the couch at which time she told me she didn't care what I thought and if I wanted to live to my next birthday to move the couch. So I moved the couch, I mean, that was my mother. Well, she wanted our rooms clean as well. I mean, it was not an option in our house if you clean your room. Living was an option. Your room being clean was not an option. And my mom would say this, you clean your room, and I more than a few times, by by more than a few, probably hundreds of times, she would say this, how many times do I have to tell you to clean your room before you understand, young man? I expect your room to be clean. I had a lot of responses to that question, but that was not the time I was supposed to say anything. She was redundantly explaining to me the absolute importance of what she wanted done. This was a big deal to her. There were some things that weren't a big deal, but this is a big deal. Paul is writing and he's helping us to understand that this is a big deal. There is a struggle to obey God. God. Just struggle to obey. Sometimes people act like, oh, it's just easy, just pray and it'll be done. Well, when I hear messages like that, I often feel like a loser. Like I prayed and it's not that way. How many of you can identify with that? Like, oh, I tried and it's not that easy. I did that and I'm not. What in the world is wrong? This is what I always think. What's wrong with me? Well, it's not my, listen, it's not that I'm wrong. It's that they're wrong to convey that, that we're not gonna struggle with this. Here's Paul and he's saying, now if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, I'm going to struggle to obey. I mean, this is just a well-known struggle. Look at verse number 21. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There's a self-evident truth. Self-evident truth, number one, I'm never totally free from sin's influence. Self-evident truth, number one, I'm never going to be totally free from sin's influence. I'm listen I'm never going to be totally free from the influence of sin and neither are you I thought if I came to church pastor you'd tell me how I could have absolute victory over sin I okay you ready here's how you have absolute victory over sin number one accept Jesus Christ as your savior number two die But as long as you have life and as long as you have breath on this side of eternity and you're not in heaven, you're going to struggle with the influence of sin. You're never totally free from sin's influence. Paul uses this word in verse number 21. It's a literary word and let me spend a little bit of time to help you understand it. I find then a law. Now, he's been using the word law to talk about the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament at large. When he uses the word law here, he's not talking about the same thing. This word law means a principle or a phenomena or a custom. And he's saying there, I find then a principle that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Paul is formulating a principle based on his own experience with the law that whenever he seeks to walk the excellent and beautiful path of God's law, evil looks, lurks nearby. I, Paul is saying this, I'm gonna follow God's law, I'm gonna follow God's plan, I'm gonna do what God wants me to do. But he's learned this over time. This is what he's saying in verse number 21. He's learned this over time that evil is always nearby. It's always easy to sin. In the middle of doing something good, with good motives, some crazy evil thought will rear its ugly head in our mind. You're doing something good. Lingering sin, the influence of sin, battles with the believer, every good thing the believer does is is being influenced and, and we're being attacked by the temptation of sin. We are never totally free of the influence of sin in our lives. Every good thought, every good intention, every good motive, every good action, each are affected by lingering sin. Now, I share this illustration in the 830 service and Some of the men at the 830 service were slow on the uptake. So I'm giving you a warning. But men, how many of you have have taken your wife on a date to be a blessing to her? Yeah, they learned that the staff that was here at the 830 service, they did not say, they were not reinforcing their pastor on any way. They weren't helpful. This is what they said. No, I've never done that to be a blessing to her. I've told her to bless me. But they're in counseling, so that's all we can ask for. But it's, a, it's good to take your wife on a date, right? It's a blessing. I said it's good to take your wife on a date, right? It'd be a blessing to her. Yeah, you say, Pastor, when's the last time you took your wife on a date? Listen, our kids are out of the house. Every day is a date. And it's sweeter than the day before. And uh, when our kids come home, that's when the date ends. And so, uh, But uh, we have a wonderful time. But It's good to be a blessing to your wife. How many of you, men or women, don't raise your hand and we don't want any stories, it's rhetorical. But how many of you in the middle of a date when you're trying to be a blessing to your wife or trying to be a blessing to your husband or friendship or whatever, you just put yourself in the scenario that works for you. In the middle of that date where you're trying to be a blessing, she says something that ticks you off and you don't tell her, she doesn't know You're just ticked off and and the date spirals downward quickly. Am I the only one who's ever done that or felt that? Now, please don't raise your hand. Debbie and I have already worked through this, all right? We've already worked through this. If you raise your hand, we offer free counseling. One of our staff members who won't say amen at these things will give you counseling and you'll feel better about yourself at the end of the service, all right? I promise. I promise. But the reality is you're doing... Here's the point. I'm just trying to be silly to prove this point. You're trying to do something good. You're trying to do something beneficial. You're trying to do something kind. You're trying to be obedient. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 28, commands husbands to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife, the Bible says, loveth himself. I mean, that's a biblical command to love your wife, care for your wife, minister to your wife, be a blessing to your wife. Can I get an amen at Canyon Ridge? I mean, that's God's call on the life of the Christian man. That's God's call. And that's God's expectation for men is that you would lead in the loving category in your home. Loving is not a wife's responsibility. It's a husband leadership responsibility. If you're not with me, wait till February. We're gonna have a good time talking about marriage in February. I'm just warming you up in November. But in doing that, evil lurks nearby. That's what he's saying in verse number 21. I find the law, when I would do good, evil is present with me. You can be in the middle of doing something wonderful for the Lord. You could be in the middle of sharing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Telling somebody who doesn't know Jesus how they can know Jesus. And insecurity sets in and says, who do you think you are? You can't do this. You don't have the answers for them. And insecurity is really just another form of self-reliance and pride. And you're trying to do something good, and evil is present with you. It's always there. Some of you even here today, you're in the midst of hearing a sermon. And God begins to work on you. And you're listening by faith as you should to every service and you're asking God to speak to your heart even about things that might not be being talked about this morning. And and there's no way we could touch every need of every heart, but the Holy Spirit of God knows exactly what every person in the room needs. And he begins to work and cultivate and talk to people and speak to them. And you're in the middle of listening to a sermon by faith when out of nowhere a faith-robbing thought begins to work on you. Like... Where will we go for lunch? Nothing wrong with that question. Literally nothing wrong with that question. And sometimes people go, I'm just a loser. I can't believe I'm thinking about lumpia during church. Or a tacos during church. What in the world? I need to be paying attention to the sermon. And, and here I am wondering when Golden Corral's gonna open. I do not even have a Golden Corral. So that's really a faith-robbing thought. But I'm thinking through that, and I'm I'm trying to get through that, and and there's this thought that comes in. Why? Because because sin is ever present. I'm never going to be totally free from its influence. It's the story of Cain and Abel when Cain was really irritated uh, with God because his brother Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't. And Cain and God are having this conversation and Cain's, you know, just irritated with the Lord and and the Lord is trying to help Cain. And and he says in Genesis chapter 4, verse number 7, God talking to Cain and he says, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, he makes this phrase. Sin lieth at the door. What does it mean? It means sin is always there. It's just right there. You don't have to go looking to sin. You don't have to think about it. It's always there. And it continues to lie at the door, even of believers, one commentator said, to lead people into disobedience. It's a a reality that I'm never totally free from sin's influence. In verse 22 and 23, it's an emphasized reality. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and bring me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul says, I take inner pleasure, verse 122, in the law of God. The word delight literally means to take pleasure in. I take pleasure in the whole collection of the law of God. That's what the word law means. On the inside of me, in the inward man, every part of me on the inside delights in the law of God. The apostles justified meaning saved inner man is on the side of God's law, no longer on the side of sin and he delights in this law. But there's an inner conflict. But there's another law in my members, verse number 23, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There's, a, there's this internal conflict Very simply stated, the law of the inner man is the rule or the disposition or the urge or the tendency or the pull or the tug of the Holy Spirit to please God and to delight in his will. The the confession of Paul is striking. He declares that the law of sin wars against the law of his mind and that, that it often gains supremacy. The law of sin captivates him and the law of sin enslaves him. Here's the goat, arguably one of the greatest Christians of all time. And notice the first person singular pronouns that he is using here. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Sin captivates us. You're not different, I'm no different. How come I constantly am struggling with sin? Well, verse number 24 and verse 25 lead us to a difficult realization where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Here's a difficult realization. Here's the first one. In this life, I'll never be, I'll never have absolute victory. I'll never have absolute victory. Now, I heard, I've been in church. I was born on a Thursday. Uh, The following Sunday, they used to keep us in the hospital like three or four days. Uh, And the following Sunday, I was in church. And since that Sunday, and I'm 50 years old, I've missed 13 Sundays in church. I mean, I'm a church veteran. I've been to church a lot. I've been to church thousands of times, and I've heard thousands of sermons, and I've read thousands of books. I know a lot about church. I mean, I'm just a church guy. Pastors should kind of be church people a good thing. And sometimes I, I've heard conveyed, alluded, or alluded to this fact that as a Christian, you can have victory and you can have, they wouldn't say these exact words, but this is the implication. You can have absolute victory over sin. Can I be super candid with you? You're never going to have absolute victory. Why? Because the flesh the flesh is your physical body, wars against the spirit or what's on the inside. The spirit is saying, when you die, your spirit and your soul are going to heaven. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, they will, they will go to hell. You'll spend eternity in hell. This fleshly body, it dies. That's why at every funeral, I quote the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We live, the book of Ecclesiastes says there's a time to be born and there is a time to die. God knows the day you will die. It's a reality. And as long as we are alive, we are going to struggle with the influence of sin in our lives. I'm never going to be absolutely free. I need to do better over time but I'll never be absolutely free. Notice what Paul says in verse number 24. Oh, it's just an, oh the word oh is an exclamative word. It's to draw attention to what's coming. Oh wretched man that I am. Oh, one in a bad condition or oh one miserable man. Who shall deliver me? Who shall deliver me from evil? Who shall deliver me from harm? But here it means who shall deliver me from the imprisonment of this flesh, this body of death, this body of decay. Who is going to deliver me from this? See, Paul understood something. Again, the only part of this body, the only part of me that's going to go to heaven is my soul and my spirit. This body is going to die. And there's no intermediate area for me to learn how to be holy. There's no holding pattern. The Catholic Church teaches there's a place called purgatory where you go, no, there's no purgatory in the Bible. There's no concept of purgatory. The Bible says it's appointed a man one time to die and then the judgment. The day you die, you will be with the Lord or you will be in the eternal judgment and fire of hell. I mean, that's what the, the, the scripture is very clear on that. And Paul, as a believer, is simply conveying this idea, who will deliver me from the imprisonment of this flesh? I have been, I have been bound by this, this, I'm never going to totally have victory. You're just not. Every one of us in the room have a sin that really we struggle with. The Bible calls it a besetting sin. Everyone in this room has that. For some, it's going to be anger, lust, depression discouragement insecurity pride entitlement you could think of a it could be just it could be anything it could be anything and you're going to and you struggle with that can i be honest with you you're always going to struggle with that though we get better over time through sanctification and through faith and trusting in the lord do not think for a moment that your life will ever get to the point where you're absolutely victorious you never will I alluded to earlier, sometimes preachers like to preach that. Our church was about two years old, two, two and a half years old, and I preached a similar concept. I think it was out of the book of Ephesians, and this guy who had went to a Bible college on the East Coast came up to me, and he was angry, like ticked off angry. Can I talk to you? I said, sure, what's up? And um, I didn't know if he was angry because he's just from the East Coast. You know how those guys are. If you're from the East Coast, I'm just teasing. Not really. Um, he was from the Northeast, all right? Let's, let's be more clear. It's cold there all the time, all right? I, he has reason to be, you know, angry most of the time because he's from Massachusetts or New England, Rhode Island, something like that. It's cold, windy, and gray all the time there. And so he comes up to me and he's like, I got to talk to you. I'm like, all right, what's going on? And, and he said, I think that we can live our lives without sinning. And we could be free from sin. I said, okay. He goes, what do you think? I don't. Why? Because the scripture says we won't. He goes, well, I think on paper we can. I said, you don't live on paper and on paper we can't. You're always going to be influenced by sin. And he was so angry with me, he almost started shaking. And I the irony was lost on him but not me you're saying we could be free from sin but you're in total and complete anger right now do do you not see this do you not see how ticked off you are Do you not see the effect of sin on your own life right now? He ultimately, uh, a few years later, ended up leaving our church over that. That was one of the issues that he left with. I think you can live free of sin, so I'm out of here. All right, I mean, that's your choice, that's fine. But the point of the matter is this, it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're a believer, you're never going to have absolute victory in your life. So I say that to say this, show yourself a little bit of grace. Some of you beat yourself up like mad every time you struggle. Now listen, when we sin, when we mess up, we fess up. I'm not talking about condoning sin in your own heart and life. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make no mistake at all. You are a sinner. You will sin today. You will sin tomorrow. You will sin the next day. We're all going to sin, and we have to confess that to the Lord. But Please don't act like you're the only one that struggles with this. No, we all do. And give yourself a little bit of grace and don't fall into the self-defeating nature that Satan wants you to fall in to where you feel like, I am such a loser. I'm not even going to try to live for Christ. That's exactly where Satan wants you to be. Don't fall into that. We will struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. Though we will struggle with sin for the rest of our life, look at verse number 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Understand this, there is victory in Jesus. Notice this exclamation Paul makes. You, don't, you might not see it, but it's almost like with the grammar and, and the, the syntax In verse 25, the word thank, it's almost like he's yelling it. I thank God. Through Christ, Jesus, our Lord. He's expressing gratitude. He's showing appreciation for the victory that we have over sin in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior... You don't understand the weight of sin that you have. Understand there is no victory in your behavior. There is no victory in you trying to do good. There is no victory in your power or your ability. The only victory there is is through Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection and you putting your faith and trust in Christ alone. That is the only place of victory. Well, I'm just gonna really pray and ask God to give me victory, but I'm not gonna accept Jesus. The only prayer God hears of the non-believer is the prayer of repentance and faith. Trust Christ today. Well, I've been to church a lot or my family's been to church a lot or my friends have been to church a lot or I watched church on TV. Great, wonderful. But have you accepted Jesus Christ alone as your personal savior? Because if you haven't, there is no victory. And here's what some of you are saying. Some of you are saying, I'm eventually gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I said this last week, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. People all over the world are gonna get saved next week, next month, in a couple of months, as soon as their career takes off, as soon as they have their children, when their kids finally go to college, they're gonna get saved. When they finally pay off the car, when they buy the new house, when that promotion comes through, whatever the case may be, I'm gonna come to Jesus and I'm gonna eventually come to Jesus. I've just got things to do right now. Dear friend, there's nothing more more important in your life than coming to Jesus today. Why is that? Well, number 1, it's cuz if you die you'll spend eternity in hell. Number 2, it's because you want to have a relationship with the creator God and victory is had through Christ alone. Come to Jesus. There's victory in Christ. That's why Paul is able to say, I thank Christ. Deliverance comes from the great deliverer, from the great comforter, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he delivers from sin because he alone can deliver from sin. Only Jesus can deliver from sin. He says it this way in Matthew chapter nine, verse number two, the verses are on your screen. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Matthew 26, verse 28, at the last supper, Jesus said, for this is my body of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sin. In John fourteen, six, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the father, but by me. In 1 Timothy 2, verse number 3, it says this, For for that is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Victory comes through the work of Christ. So, First Corinthians fifteen seven says, "But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." Jesus Christ delivers believers from sin in two ways. Number one, He justifies the believer. Romans chapter seven, really, Romans five six and seven are all about justification. You say, "What does justification mean, Pastor?" That's a big word. Well, one famous evangelist came up with this definition, just as if I'd never sinned. True, uh, but it deserves a little bit more work than just that. It doesn't mean just as if I'd never sinned and I'm here. It means just as if I've never sinned and I'm restored to the relationship that mankind was supposed to have before Adam sinned. I'm restored to what we would call a pre-fall condition. That's justification. That's justification. I'm in a pre-fall condition. That's the, if you're a believer, that's the relationship you're supposed to have with God. That's the relationship I'm supposed to have with God. And number two, Christ places the believer under God's grace. Chapter six, verse number 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Though we struggle with sin for the duration of our lives, we are to be transformed in our minds by the wonderful grace of God. That's why Paul says in verse 25, so then with the mind, in my mind, in my inner man, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In my mind, I want to serve God. In my mind, I'm doing the right thing. So chapter seven, uh, I was talking with somebody that was at the 8.30 service and they said, pastor, it feels like every week in in this chapter, Paul's saying the same thing over and over. Yeah, it's intentional redundancy. He's saying the same thing over and over and over and over again to help us come to grips with this reality. It is intentional redundancy. So, I have a few take home truths. Just truths to take home. Number one, truth number one. If you enjoy sin and you can sin continually without conviction, you're not saved. If you enjoy sin and you can sin continually without conviction, you're not saved doesn't have to be deep about it. But if the Holy Spirit of God is inside you, the Bible says Jesus left him to reprove us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You might sin, but it would never bring the same joy as it did before your salvation. Now, some people don't sin because they don't like the consequence of sin, the effect of sin. They enjoy their life enough that they're like, I just don't want to do that because it would it would have negative consequences on my life. It's like some people don't speed on the freeway. Not because they don't want to get there faster. I'm just illustrating this in a weird way. They just don't want to pay for the ticket. I I don't mind paying for tickets. If you enjoy sin and you can sin without conviction, You're just not saved. Get saved today. Come to Jesus today. Accept Christ as your Savior today. Have the weight of sin removed. This is such a a wonderful thing. Almost every time that I have the privilege of leading someone to Christ, almost every time, when, when they are, after they accept Christ as their Savior, and we're talking, they'll say something along these lines. This is, I feel so much lighter now. I just feel lighter, Pastor. I don't know what it is. What what happened to me? Somebody said to me one time, I I feel like I'm on a cloud. And I I asked them, how many clouds have you been on? I knew what they meant. I felt the same way. Like, I I just, dude, I feel like, why? Because the burden of sin has been removed. We sometimes forget that, don't we? If you can sin without conviction... You're not saved, you're dead to it. So what do you do? Realize that you're a sinner, admit it, understand only Jesus can save you and put your faith and trust in Christ alone. And by the way, if you're here right now saying, I wonder if he's talking to me, you need to get saved. That's called conviction. Well, I'm the only one in the room that's not. No, there's many. But if you're thinking that, you need to get saved. Saved. I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm not saying that. I remember the day I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. I thought, how does he know everything I've ever done? That wasn't him talking to me. That was God talking to me and God drawing me to him. You need to get saved today if you feel that. Number two. There's a weight to sin. You may struggle with sin. You may struggle with insecurity, depression, anger, bitterness, or anything else. You're never going to be have complete victory over it. You have to continually seek God's grace and ask him for grace for the struggle. You have to continually seek God's grace and ask him for grace for the struggle. Let me illustrate it this way, okay? I'm not trying to be funny, but this is something that people struggle with all the time. Men and women. The, the porn epidemic in our country is catastrophic. It's destroying homes and marriages at a rampant rate. Children as young as five and six years old are seeing porn in their life. It's evil. I hate it. I hate the porn industry. I hate Hollywood. I hate what they're doing to people. I hate what they're doing to kids. And every dad in this room needs to have enough backbone to make sure that he's not, his friends aren't, his wife's not, and his children aren't viewing porn in any form or fashion, including having Netflix on an iPad or in their room or Hulu or whatever, we need to make sure that our families are clear point. Can I get an amen from godly people in the room today? It is destructive on every stinking level. Abusive to women, degrading to children. <sighs> By the way, if you don't think it's degrading, let me know, I'll take you. I will pay for you to go on a trip with me to Cambodia where we see the sex trade started off and I'll drop you in a village and just leave you there for about a week and a half. It'll change your world. It'll change your world. You say, you seem pretty passionate about that. No, I'm righteously angry about it and passion comes out when I'm angry. It's a struggle, I'll never get over it. Uh, but let's say that a person struggles with porn, all right? People do. Many people in this church do. They do. So what do I do? You can continually ask God for grace. For the struggle. God, I'm struggling with this. You know I'm gonna struggle with it. Please give me grace. I don't wanna look about it. I don't wanna see it. I pray that you'd blind my eyes to that. Please help me not to look at that. Give me grace over TV shows that would draw me that way. YouTube channels that would cause me to think those thoughts. Uh, um, um, conversations with people that would cause me to think those thoughts. God, just help me to keep a clean, pure mind. You say, so do you pray that in the morning? You might have to pray a prayer like that a thousand times a day. Really, a th- Well, I'm not counting. I'm just saying. Every time you, you start to struggle with that, you've got to pray for grace. Well, why is that? Because you're going you're gonna to struggle. Sometimes young guys will come to me and they'll struggle and we'll talk about it and then they'll come to me later. Pastor, I'm still struggling. Yeah, bro, you're going to struggle for life with these issues. You've got to pray for grace over and over and over again. Grace for the struggle. You might struggle with insecurity. God, I feel worthless today. Please give me the grace to do what you've called me to do. Please help me in this area, Lord. I need your help. I need to have confidence in who you are. I need to not trust in who I am, but who you are. So please give me victory over this insecurity that's in my life. You may have to pray that prayer a thousand times a day. Struggle number three, or or, or take home point number three. Bring that up, would you? The believer knows that there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit inside him. Therefore, the wise Christian does all he can to focus his mind on the law and grace of God. In other words, hey, there's a a battle inside me. So I'm I'm gonna focus my attention on the things of God. I'm gonna focus my attention on the word of God. I'm gonna memorize scripture. I'm gonna have godly friends that edify and encourage me. I'm gonna do everything that I can to follow God's will and God's desire. I'm gonna focus on God's grace and the love of God. God's word and the love of the person in jesus christ i'm going to give my attention to that because i know that there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit the foolish christian runs to the world and the comforts of the world hoping they will satisfy deep down knowing they never will I shared this illustration earlier, or or this application earlier. It's like a Christian who struggles with depression. I'm not going to run to the Psalms to find help. I'm going to go watch a horror movie to find help, which is only going to make the depression worse. The world doesn't help sin problems. The world magnifies sin problems. I struggle with depression, so I'm going to go sit in a dark room and I'm going I'm to read dark stories because they they give me a temporary release of, of pain. Yeah, they give you a temporary release of pain only on the other end to magnify that pain. Come on. Now, if you've been depressed, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that the world only magnifies the effect of sin. And so the foolish Christian, leave point number three or that third one up, um, the foolish Christian will run to the world to try to find help. When the world can't offer help, the world magnifies the problem. So the wise Christian runs from the world and to Christ. Oh, 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 oh. I'm going to take this as the Holy Spirit, and I'm not charismatic. The foolish Christian runs to social media. There. There is a direct link between social media and depression. If you want to feel good about yourself, don't get on social media. You say, well, pastor, you ever see people on social media, how much they lie? It's a it's a gateway for for Mr. Uh, we're, oh uh, my aunt Susie and Uncle Mike were here last week and so my sister Gloria and her husband Charlie and myself and Judith and Natalie um or, or just Natalie Judith was was on a flight from Hawaii here um we went to. Um, La Jolla Shores, and we're walking on the beach there in La Jolla, and as we're walking on the beach in La Jolla, if you know where Scripps Pier is, we cross Scripps Pier, and there was this couple that were taking uh, Instagram photos, and the photos, you could tell the photos look great, but I just watched them. I just watched them for like 15 minutes, as they spent 15 minutes, 15, that's a one and a five, 15 times 60, I don't know what that is, like 300 well, 3,000 seconds or whatever that would be. I I didn't get an A in math. Um, I I had a calculator. Um, They spent about 15 minutes taking pictures and they would take a picture and then they would look at it. Oh no, that was not gonna work. And they're doing all of these weird angles to get one good picture. And, And they put that on there, why? To make themselves look good and subconsciously or consciously, I don't know, but to make other people feel bad. Look, look how amazing our life is. Nothing says exhortive like, I want to feel good and I want you to feel like garbage. And Christians are like, I'm just gonna go scrolling through Instagram because what well, what? Because I got nothing else to do, because I want to feel but no, 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 you've got other things to do. And social media is just i I'm not preaching against it. Well, actually, I kinda am. It's just a gateway for depression. Well, pastor, let me tell you why. Listen, there's not an exception to that rule. And we're finally starting to see a boatload of evidence, scientific journals the world over, by, written by people who are not Christians, I might add. They don't attend Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. I wish they did. But they don't but they would agree that these things are negative and destructive. Again, I'm just trying to help you apply the word of God to my life. Why, when I already have an inward struggle, would I I run to the world that will magnify the inward struggle? Hey, it's football season. If I had a porn problem, I'm not watching football. There's a 0% reality, 0% chance that the Chadwick family is watching the Super Bowl halftime show. 0%. 0%. If there was a less than 0%, well, don't you want to see who's performing? No, that's the very issue. I don't want to see who's performing. Why? Because I have to focus my mind on the law and grace of God, and I'll just have to admit it. I'm not strong enough to be tempted and not to think about what tempts me. For you, it might be a love of cars. That's not my thing. it's not my thing. Cars are utilitarian and they need to be clean and quiet. That's all I care about in a car. Clean and quiet. If you have a dirty, nice car, you're wasting life. I don't know about you. Just take that thing to the car wash. But for you, I've got friends, they love cars. Before they got saved, they used to hang out at car lots and they would learn everything. Oh, it's got, you know, this many, uh, you know, this is the gear ratio and it's got, you know, this this much torque power on the low end and high end and all of that. The one thing they wouldn't do, I'll tell you this for sure, they wouldn't buy a Prius. (laughs) Why? Because they're men. If you're a man and a guest and own a Prius, I'm, I'm sorry. We have a support group for that. Um, <laughs> run by, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm just trying to be funny. But for some guys, it's cars. So the issue is not porn. The issue is not cars. The issue is whatever it is that you struggle with. Don't run to the world. Run to the Lord. Number four, the wise believer reminds himself many times each day that he's justified because of the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ he's justified because of the death burial and resurrection of Christ you are not justified you are not made right as I defined it earlier you're not restored to that relationship of Adam and Eve because of your goodness you're restored to that relationship because of the work of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for your sins and you have to remind yourself of that we live in a performance-based world don't we I've got to be the best sailor. I've got to be the best salesman. I've got to be the best, you know, widget maker in my whole corporation. And if I don't, things are bad. So we we often, to, we often want to perform our way into favor with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why you have favor with Jesus Christ. Because he died for you and you accepted him. And the moment you accepted him, if you're saved, you became, the Bible uses this phrase, you become adopted into the family of God. Jesus says that you're an heir, and the Bible says you're an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that he becomes your heavenly father, but in a familial way, he becomes your brother. You're not justified because of what you do. You're justified because of what he's done and who he is. And so Paul can say, oh, wretched man that I am, how long till I'm done with this body of death? He says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says elsewhere, the Chadwick Street version, I I wanna be with the Lord, but to be with you is more profitable. Paul says, how long till I can go and then he, till I can go be with the Lord? And then he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, that with the mind, I serve the law of God, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul is super sensitive to sin. Sensitivity to sin prompted one of the early church fathers named Chrysostom to say, I fear nothing but sin. The church has become much too comfortable with sin. And though we will struggle with it, no doubt, and though it will be a part of our life, no doubt, we are called to run from it every time we're confronted with it. An unbeliever, when confronted with the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, said to his, the man preaching the pastor of the church, if I believe that doctrine, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, and all I have to do is... By faith, receive it. He said, I would be sure of this. I'll be converted and then I'll go live a life full of sin to make myself happy. To which the pastor replied, how much sin do you think it would take to fill a true Christian to satisfaction? The man sat there for a minute and didn't know the answer. And the pastor responded, just a little bit of sin is more than we can stand. One of the reasons Paul is able to say, or Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, is because the closer you get to Jesus Christ, the further you get from yourself and your own desires. So there's two concluding at questions. Number one, if you're a Christian today, are you living for Christ or have you become comfortable with sin? God spoke to us, if that's you. His word is clear. Question number two, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior and if you would die and spend eternity in hell today, would you recognize that you're a sinner, repent of your sin and trust only Jesus to save you? Well, how do I do that? You pray a prayer, something similar to this. There's no magic words. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And the best I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sin and come into my heart and to save me. In childlike faith, I accept you as my Savior. If you're not saved, if you'll pray a prayer similar to that, the Bible says that you will be saved if you truly believe it, if you truly mean it. If you're saying it because you think it's kind of like taking vitamin C and maybe this will work, no, no, no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't try Jesus out. We put all of our eggs in the Jesus basket. And that's really what salvation is. If you're not saved today, we'll have two pastors up front that can take the Bible and show you from God's word how you can be saved or have counselors and you just heard how to be saved. Our prayer today is that you would trust Jesus Christ alone. Father, bless our time in the world. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.